Welcome to Five Books for Catholics, where an expert selects and explains five outstanding books in some aspect of Catholic life, doctrine or culture. St. Gregory the Great was Bishop of Rome from 590 to 604. The son of St. Sylvia and Gordianus, a Roman patrician, he was appointed urban prefect of Rome in 573 and entered monastic life the following year. Upon his father's death, he converted the family's Roman villa on the Chelian Hill into the Monastery of St. Andrew, where today there is still a monastery and the Church of St. Gregory on the Chelian Hill. At that same monastery, he set the precedent for the Gregorian series of Masses, the practice of celebrating 30 Masses for a deceased person. In 579, Pope Pelagius II made him a deacon and sent him as papal ambassador to the imperial court in Constantinople. In 590, a few years after his return to Rome, Gregory was elected pope. One of his most important actions as Bishop of Rome was to appoint the prior of the monastery of St. Andrew, Augustine of Canterbury, as the head of a mission to convert the English. Through his writings, he exerted an immense influence in spirituality and ministry in the Latin Church throughout the Middle Ages, and was recognised as a doctor of the Church. In part one of this interview, Dr Thomas Humphreys explained his pick of the five best books by St Gregory the Great. In this second part, he looks at the best biographies of the saint and discusses his own work. Dr. Thomas Humphreys is Professor in the College of Arts and Science at St. Leo University, Florida. A native of Arkansas and a lifelong Roman Catholic, he holds a mandatum from the Diocese of St. Petersburg and enjoys giving regular theological reflections outside of the classroom with student faith communities, parishes and monasteries. He also volunteers with the local fire department as chaplain and holds the rank of district chief. He is a licensed Florida EMT and NREMT, and he is the author of Ascetic Pneumatology, published by Oxford University Press, and Who is Chosen, published by Whiff and Stock. What led you to study the Church Fathers in general, and St. Gregory the Great in particular? (laughs) Uh, These these are stories of failure. Uh, I, uh, I was at Catholic U studying, you know, for master's and a PhD together, and uh, there were all these things that I I wanted to study, and and like in a systematics class, you know, we 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 were doing a theological anthropology, right? Grace and free will, and all these difficult questions, predestination, and who's in charge of what, and and how do we become united with God, and and morality is spirituality, and I'm I'm reading, you know, some of the the twentieth and twenty first century theologians. And I'm thinking, wow, these guys are awesome. This is just incredible conversation. I have these questions. I want to answer them. But what I noticed is that like all the really good modern theologians are arguing about what the ancient theologians meant. In other words, it's not like we're the first generation to ask these profound questions. How do we think of the Trinity? What's going on with that? What what does it mean to be human and create the image of God? Uh, And so I realized – that if I wanted to engage contemporary theologians meaningfully, deeply, that I needed to learn the fathers. I mean, like that's the terms of the conversation. There are 
brilliant, profound thinkers who have gone before us, and there are many inspired holy men and holy women that that have spoken God's truth. That's where I should start. Uh, and so I, I I realized that I wanted to study the fathers in order to answer the questions that were burning in my own heart, right? And and still are. I also encountered my own limits. You know, like I I I thought that I could do this uh, right away. And it turns out you can't, you know, you need a lot of language, you need a lot of history, you need a lot of philosophy. Uh, and so it, it it took me a long time uh, to do that. And and the way to set aside that time is to say, OK, you know, I'm, I'm going to devote a period of study these five years in my life to to actually be informed as a historical theologian in these early centuries um, now. You can't do it in all languages all at the same time as well. So I chose Latin, uh, a language that I had started learning in high school. And and I mean, I'm Roman Catholic. And so in a lot of ways, this is native language for us. Uh, and that's how I got specifically into Latin patristics um, and, and Gregory. Yeah, facing your own limits, realizing other people have faced their limits and, and God has helped them exceed it. And then I think I want what they had. I I, I really do. And so let me study them and see what clues they offer. And you've written on St. Gregory in your book, Ascetic Pneumatology. In brief, what are the theme and main findings of your study? <laughs> in brief, yeah. Um, so, you know, when when you're writing a dissertation in your first book, some of what you have to do is is just show that you belong to the academic community, right? You have You have to find something to sink into. And... Uh, I was very interested in desire and and what desire means and how it manifests itself in our own lives and how that's connected to God. Uh, and And Gregory is one of those theologians who has thought a lot about desire, just categories of desire, different things, you know, making observations. A, a helpful one that shows up in the morality on Job and, and probably in the the gospel homilies often is like, you know, there, there are different kinds of desire. There's a desire that when I get what I wanted, what I desired, the dire, desire is over, you know, like like a desire for a drink. Uh, you, you slake your thirst and you're not thirsty anymore. But there are other desires where, you know, a little leads to more. And having having just a taste of it means you want more and more and more and more. Now, some of those desires are, are problematic, like my desire for donuts and bacon. You know, one piece of bacon means I want all the rest of the, the bacon in the house or one donut means uh, I need to eat the rest of the donuts. But, OK, not not just those problematic physical desires, but Gregory's saying this is pointing towards something like spiritual desire. And your desire for God and and desire for God is the kind of thing that can never be sated. You're never full. A little bit of God leaves you wanting more God. And so you just, you fall headlong into love and you just keep falling. You just keep going after God. That's an experience, actually, Gregory says, of ecstasy, of standing outside yourself. And you move outside yourself. You get away from your problems, from your hangups, from your sins your limitations, you exceed them. And for a Catholic, when you when you exceed yourself, when you go outside yourself, then God says, come stand inside me. Come belong to me. Be my adopted son, my adopted daughter, belong to my family now. So there's this 
process of transformation that's that doesn't mean that that all my desires are bad. It means, in fact, a lot of them are misunderstood. And so I, I want a school of desire. Well, that was a question that had been burning in my heart. I'd read some Bernard of Clairvaux about that and thought maybe I would write on on Bernard and the Cistercians. Um, but a lot of that work has been done and done quite well. And so I kept kind of circling around Gregory. I was also uh, very much trained in Augustine with, with my advisor, uh, Louis Ayers, and Cashin. Uh, again, I've been around Benedictine monasteries, and they always recommend you read Cashin. Benedict says so himself in, in the rule. Uh, and so I, I started doing the work of a historian and realized that Gregory combines a lot of the thoughts of Cashin as a monk and a lot of the thoughts of Augustine as a different kind of monk and a bishop. Uh, and and so that demarcated a period. Cashin and Augustine are contemporaries, and they're at the beginning of that cycle, and Gregory's at the end. And every one of them agrees that the process of transformation, the the movement from fear to love, the movement from vice to virtue, from this life to the next, is one that's fundamentally premised on the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so to study that that transformation in virtue, that ascetical practice, is also to study Trinitarian theology, the work of God in our lives. And for additional readings, you recommend three biographies on St. Gregory the Great. Duddon's, published at the beginning of the 20th century, and those of R.A. Marcus and Carol Straw, which were written towards the end of the same century. What is the respective strength of each one? So Dudden is like the foundation. And, you know, you can look in Marcus, you can look in Straw, and and they will both say in their own ways, um, I'm not trying to redo Dudden. That, that's something that maybe cannot be done because it, it's comprehensive. It's very historical. It's a large work. Uh, and and it's going to walk you through every point in Gregory's life. Uh, and so for people who like history in that way, like uh, can you give me a kind of a modern biography of an ancient figure? And can you tell me about a lot of the intellectual controversies? That's the place to go. And in, in essence, in English, no one has tried to redo it and for good reason. So it's it's a classic work in that sense. It's also widely available. It's been reprinted um, and I think you can find it online for free. And so, you know, if you're if you're just late at night interested and you don't have time to get Marcus or Straw in the mail or go to the bookstore right now, um, man, you're going to find virtually everything you want. Now, what what Straw offers is uh, that more systematic approach to Gregory, and she recognizes the tension in Gregory, that it's a project that takes Gregory apart and puts him back together in a way that he did not put himself together, right? So like we were talking about, you want to know what Gregory has to say about faith Maybe you use the index to the moralia and you pull out all those passages on faith and then you organize them. That's effectively what Straw has done over a number of different topics. So when you read Straw, you know, you're you're going to get her wonderful presentation of the thought world of Gregory. And it's going to come across more in that modern question. What does Gregory think about the sacraments? What does Gregory think about scripture? And and she's essentially quoting. She's done a lot of that work for you in a marvelous way. It, it's a very good introduction to Gregory, 
Um, and, you know, she titles it <laughs> Perfection and Imperfection, right? Recognizing that Gregory's this figure at the cusp of everything, historical periods, at the cusp of, um, you know, this life and the next life, of active life out there and about doing things, social justice type concerns and contemplation, deep reflective prayer being being moved by God. Um, all right, so you'll get a, a fairly good systematic presentation of the ideas in Gregory. Marcus is doing yet a different thing. Uh, and Marcus is, you know, a, a modern historian of the first rank. And, and he's interested in the question of defining those historical periods. And so there's a lot of very subtle work about what separates Gregory from the the era before him and what separates Gregory from the era after him. In other words, what's the unique value of Gregory if you're just trying to read church history and secular history? And Gregory's a watershed figure. And so if you like history in that way, you're going to see a lot there. Marcus is also very carefully attuned um, – to education and formation, and uh, this is a, a really important thing for us to think about, especially in the American context. You know, we're seeing uh, more and more explosive conversations about education of our children and what's the role of a school, what's the role of a principal, the role of a government, and helping to form our children. And well, we're not the first generation to ask this question, and Marcus is sensitive to it in the fifth, sixth, seventh centuries. In, in what texts are being used to, to learn. And Gregory has a lot of very subtle and careful things to do. Maybe, maybe it's better to learn your grammar by reading the book of Genesis than by reading anything else. And maybe it's better to have your stories of the heroes told by a pope about the holy men and women right around you in the most recent generation. There's a lot to be said for, for thinking about transitions in historical periods and the role of education uh, and, and formation. And Marcus is attuned to that. Uh, I also, you know, as a, as a historian, think Marcus is right in the arguments that he's making about kind of what goes together and what's distinct. And so I find him very illuminating for the larger process of, of sorting through history. What well, Benedict's rule was to the monks of the Middle Ages, the pastoral rule of Gregory the Great was to the clergy of the world. This is the common scholarly assessment of Gregory's influential work on the ministry of the ordained. Although you did not include the pastoral rule in your top five because it regards the priestly life, does it contain any valuable teachings for the laity as well? It does. Uh, and I I went back and forth on whether to, to mark it highly in the five or not. Um, Look, if you've had a class with me, you know I just – I don't force myself to make such decisions. I just assign all the books and then we read them all and, and talk about them. But uh, I get it. you gotta, you got to find a place to start. For me, the, the pastoral rule or the book of pastoral care is not the place to start with Gregory. Uh, but that may not be the case for people listening to us or for many other scholars. It certainly has not been the case and, and for good reason. Um, the The – the rule in that sense the, that Gregory offers is, is very much like a psychology book. And if you wanted to think about modern books, it's, it's got something that would register with like how to win friends and influence people and how to have a, you know, a, a goal-oriented life and, and all of these things. Because Gregory says 
you know, look, you're going to find five kind of people about this issue. Some are going to be angry about this. Some are going to be angry about that. Here's how you deal with each of them. And it's a manual in that sense of dealing with various uh, kinds of normal human struggles. It's also a manual of persuasion, right, in, in the sense that he gives practical advice for if someone's struggling with an idea, here's how you should approach them. Uh, and, and that's very valuable. The difficulty I have when reading that text is that I'm not as mature as Gregory. And so I don't always know the person to whom I'm speaking. And for that reason, I get lost, right? Because I, I would read it as a manual and I'd try to say, okay, are you type one, type two, type three? And and then I'm not having a conversation with someone anymore. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to apply the rule as a manual. Uh, maybe where I'm more mature, um, it, it would strike me more fluid. On the other hand, if you don't read it as a manual for how to talk to someone else, ostensibly it's how to preach to other people, right? How to be a good leader. If you don't read it as a how do I lead someone else, but if you read it as a review of conscience, if you read it as a how do I lead myself, then I think it operates as a very dense, uh, very dense reflection on your own life. And that's a marvelous thing to have from a pope and a saint and a doctor of the church. And what are your current or future research projects? <laughs> um, well, I, I was happy to hear you say Lexio Divina. Uh, I, I've been thinking a lot about that in terms of the wisdom that the, the Benedictine tradition as a whole has to offer uh, particularly higher education, right? I mean, I, I work as a professor teaching undergrads and graduate students, and some of them are very interested in ministry and the church, and some of them are not interested. In, and so uh, how do we translate the lessons of Lexio Divina into other uh, other realms. And I think there's a lot of wisdom that can be learned, though we we must always remember that, that Lexio Divina proper can only be done with sacred scripture, right? Because because only sacred scripture is that uh, that body of revelation in written form in that particular way that, that goes hand in hand with tradition. So uh, I've, I've been working on a couple of article length projects uh, and look forward to one or two of those coming out before too long trying to apply the lessons of, of Lexio to how one might teach or how one might lead seminars, even if you're not doing reflection on scripture. I think that's very important. Uh, I've, I've been long-term interested in Cashin and uh, and some of his texts, translating and doing a, an edition of his On the Incarnation, which is interested in uh, the Pelagian controversy and the Nestorian controversy. And so there's, there's just a lot of good historical work and, and fun intellectual work to be done there. Um, but that's that's dense work uh, to to work through that. And I have some colleagues uh, that are great help with that. I've also been um, you know, for quite some time now rethinking some of the themes in ascetic pneumatology and and trying to come to terms with those uh, in a way that that doesn't need a million footnotes. Uh, and so it's kind of translating to myself what that work meant and. Uh, I, I've come to terms with what I call Trinitarian spirituality, and I'm not the only one that thinks this. But you know, if we if we truly believe the fundamental mystery of the universe is is this God who is love, this God who is lover and beloved Son, the Father says at the baptism of of the Son, Father and beloved Son, and then the love by which the Father loves the Son, and 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 by which God loves us, and we love our neighbors. That's got to have real meaning 
for how I lead my life, right? Like, like the doctrine of the Trinity itself gets lived in a particularly Christian morality and a particularly Christian spirituality. Or to continue following Augustine, if we, if we think of the Spirit as the gift of God, and then we realize a, a, a gift belongs with a giver and a receiver, and we start thinking about the Father giving to the Son or God giving to us, the whole pattern of the Word become flesh and crucifixion for us. Well, that's a Trinitarian and a Christological pattern, deep fundamental pattern, which also has has import for morality and spirituality. In other words, we cannot separate our Trinitarian theology from anything else. And I've been working on a, a project that tries to present that you know, in my own life, my own my own realizations about myself, my limits, about what it means to think something through, what it means to love someone well, and how that is in the image of, of the God who's Trinity. Uh, and uh, hopefully that's going to be a book-length project uh, that, that would fit in that work of spirituality and doctrinal theology, uh, where people can really recognize that, that God is present in our lives and that, you know, God wants so much more for us than we even want for ourselves but we we stall when we try to separate and parcel out these different things and make this reflection something to talk about on Sunday and this reflection something to talk about on Friday. Instead, we need to integrate all of it and live that genuinely Trinitarian Catholic life. Professor Thomas Humphreys, thank you very much for taking us through your pick of books by and on St. Gregory the Great. Thank you. You're thank welcome. You for thank you. To read or listen to the rest of this interview, and gain full access to our archive. Visit fivebooksforcatholics.com and become a premium subscriber. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and give it a top rating on the platform of your choice. That way more people can discover it. You can also support the podcast and help us produce more interviews like this one by making a one-off donation via the link given in the show notes. As little as one dollar, one pound or one Europe can help and will be greatly appreciated. Thank you once again, and God bless.